Shining a light on the women creating impact, leading organizations, and mission-focused strategic programs across the federal technology and consulting community, this is Impact. I'm being joined today by Lauren Maffeo. She is an author of a book titled Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up. She's also an adjunct professor at George Washington University in D.C. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So as I said, you do have a book out. Can you tell me a little bit about it and where people can find it? Yes, I would love to. Uh, it's a book called Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up, and it is a 100-page, six-step guide to help readers design their first data governance programs from scratch. I published it with the Pragmatic Programmers in print last February, and it's currently available from all major booksellers in print, audio, and ebook format. And I got the idea for this book because I've spent the last eight years of my career working as an analyst covering the cloud business intelligence and AI landscape. And then I've also worked as a systems designer for various data-specific products and services that we are designing and producing on behalf of federal government clients. And I got the idea for this book because the work has taught me that even as the amount of data produced and ingested keeps growing exponentially, the number of leaders who say they're data-driven is actually decreasing. So that presents an enormous challenge, especially as we consider things like the executive order on AI, which was released last fall. The fact is that the amount of data that exists today is not is the vast majority of it is not fit for use by AI because it has not been vetted for quality standards and it lacks any sort of oversight or governance, which teams can then automate into their technical environments. And so the the reality is that most organizations do not have the data backbone needed to succeed at AI today because they lack governance in large part. And that also is driving a lot of reliance on external LLMs like ChatGPT. Uh, it's because people would rather use the work that another organization has already put in than go through the governance work of establishing their own standards and models. So now that's an admittedly challenging task, but I do feel confident given my experience that the book is something that can be a guide for folks who are writing that first blueprint for what data governance looks like. Okay. So let's let's take a few steps back and take a look at you and what experience or events helped steer you down this path of where you are today. Uh, yes, I, I love answering this question because I always talk about what a roundabout career I've had while staying in the same sector. I graduated from school uh, up through graduate school with the intent of becoming a journalist. And because I graduated in the Great Recession timeframe when news was increasingly moving to digital, that meant uh, entering the digital media landscape as a reporter I did not care at that time which beat I covered. I just wanted experience gaining clips and reporting and getting my work out there to be seen so that I could continue to gain reporting experience. And so be, through 
a series of connections, I ended up networked into the tech sector in London where I was living at the time. The tech sector in London and in Europe more broadly was small but growing very rapidly. And so there was a lot of opportunity to cover the European tech sector from London, which I did for a year after leaving graduate school. And I reported on the startup ecosystem for news sites like The Guardian and The Next Web, which I loved. And that experience really taught me how much interest I held in tech. I genuinely enjoyed speaking to these founders and learning about their businesses. Being a reporter was the best on-ramp into a tech career because as the reporter, I didn't need to know the answers. I just needed to find the right people who could give me the answers I needed. So I really enjoyed that work. It was unfortunately more sporadic than I would have liked. And ultimately it was too sporadic for me to feel comfortable pursuing a full-time career in news like I had expected. So I pivoted to working in the tech sector first as a marketing hire at a Silicon Valley-based SaaS startup. I then spent four years at Gartner as an analyst for them, where I covered trends in cloud business intelligence software. That's really where my passion for AI began. Um, I started to learn about various AI techniques and how they can be used to solve specific business problems. I saw the exponential growth of data. It's also where I learned about the problem of bias in AI and became really interested in technical solutions to that. And then that led me to my current full-time role. I work as a senior service designer for an organization called Steampunk, which is a human-centered design firm serving the federal sector. We design and and build technical solutions that are human-centered for the federal sector. Uh, So I feel like I've leapfrogged Quite a bit, but I've always stayed within that same sector. And I would say about five or six years ago is really when I started to hone my interest in AI and data. That's so interesting. I went, I also went to school for journalism, more for news radio back when you recorded on reels and eight tracks. And (laughs) you like, you just, you start, you, you go first to school for one thing, and then the people that succeed are able to dump, tumble and grow with all the changes that happened over time. It's very true. And I w- and we have that in common, by the way, because when I was in college, I was also an on-air radio reporter, and I loved it. I, and yes. I would have loved to do that full time. I always say if I, if money and, and <laughs> obstacles were no object, I would love to be like Terry Gross on NPR and do something like that um, and have a public affairs show on public radio because I really love that work. As you know, uh, if you were in the sector yourself, uh, the jur- the state of journalism is is something to be discussed on another podcast that's hours long because we just don't have the time for it. But you're totally right that the, the skill sets that journalists gain are so applicable across sectors. I would say they are essential in tech because a lot of stuff is built and shipped without a lot of strategy or, or thought behind it. And if you are a journalist, you are taught first and foremost to communicate concisely and figure out who you need to speak with and which questions are the right ones to ask at the right time. That's absolutely applicable within journalism. And I would say we need more people like that. Mm-hmm. So as you were go- coming along, do you have a leader or a mentor along the way who helped guide you? 
It's interesting. I I do. I've had, and I think about this two ways. I think of it in terms of sponsors and mentors because I think of them as quite different. Sponsors, I believe, are people in your organization who tangibly advocate for your work and help your work get seen by the right audiences at the right time. So one example of that is back when I was at Gartner, I was really interested. I pitched the idea of a Gartner research note, which would go out to the our enterprise clients. I was working with small and mid-sized business owners as, as our readership at the time. So pitching the idea for a note to the enterprise audience was a bigger endeavor. And as a relatively unknown young analyst at the time, I was not going to get that visibility to research and publish the note on my own. And so Whit Andrews, who was at that time a very seasoned and distinguished analyst at Gartner, is somebody he's somebody I connected with and he co-wrote the note for me to give it that or with me, I should say, to give it that internal clout it needed to see the light of day and be published for our customers. And so I always think of Wit as a sponsor for me because he really played that advocacy role by helping my work grow within the organization. And then when I think about mentors, it's for me, it's less about one particular person. It's more about snapshots of conversations I've had with many people throughout the years. And the best way I can describe it is to say there are snippets of conversations I've had with with women and other people in my line of work. And so there have been things they've said, nuggets of wisdom they've given that are a single sentence often said at the at the end or in the middle of a conversation, but they those nuggets have ultimately stuck with me and then compiled to give a lot of tangible advice. And so I think about mentorship in a less uh, concrete way, but I, I do think it ultimately comes back to building a really strong network that is diverse, that is both within and outside your organization and is ultimately filled with people who are going to give you tangible advice to help you grow. Awesome. So now let's look at what is one important thing that you think leaders should keep in mind as they're guiding teams and driving organizations forward? I think that teams, especially technical teams, need to be extremely clear about which problems they're solving and really I'm going to pull a Simon Sinek and start and say that they should start with why um, they I see a lot of absence of that uh, these days. Um, I, I think I mean, the last four years have really done a number on everyone. And I see a lot and work with a lot of folks who feel like they're flying blind, like they are delivering at a breakneck speed that is not sustainable. And yet they're not ultimately sure why their department or organization exists or which problems they solve or for whom. And so as a result, because they don't have that high level of vision, they are beholden to anyone and everyone who requests their services rather than having that strategy to say, this is what we do. This is who we serve. This is what we provide. That gives you a framework to 
prioritize and help everybody else understand what it is you do and what your team does. Absent of that, you really become at everyone's mercy, which means that your team is at everyone's mercy. And so if you're a leader, your team is looking for to you for you to set that vision for them and to create that common goal. I say that with data and data governance as well. I think it's very easy for organizations to divorce their data usage from their business plans and their reasons for existing when really the two should be absolutely correlated. Your data governance strategy should always be in service to your business mission, um, because if it's not, and it very often is not, that's where you get massive misalignment. And that, again, is the main reason why most organizations today do not succeed with big data efforts. That link is still missing too much. And that's a really, sometimes that's a hard sell for people to, to let them know how important that is. And it, it really- is. It is. Data governance is not uh, something that even within the sector of data and AI, it's not something that everyone wants to talk about. I, I liken it to the conversation about security five years ago. Uh, if for folks in tech, you might remember that five years ago, if you talked about security, especially in the open source community, people basically put their hands over their ears and started talking over you because they just didn't want to acknowledge that there were very palpable problems with open source source security and address those um, when the reality is there, we've seen the number of cyber attacks grow exponentially. And now we don't, as an industry, have a choice anymore uh, to ignore cybersecurity. We absolutely have to in large part because the biggest cause of security breaches is people within organizations who do it without knowing. And so I do think we are going to see a similar trajectory with data governance where five to 10 years from now, it is there is going to be no question that it's essential and that it needs to be implemented in a succinct way. Now, though, I do think the conversation is in its earliest phases where sometimes you have to convince people that it's even worth doing. Right. Now let's look at, if someone was looking at your career as a guiding force, what are some tips that you would give them to help them overcome some of the struggles that you may have faced so that they don't face them as well? Yeah, the first I would say the first lesson I've learned is related to my age and my generation, which is attach yourself to a career not to a company. That does not mean that whatever company you work for, whether it's an external one or it's your own, that does not mean that you don't give it a hundred percent and that you are, that you are producing excellent work. You're a great, you're a great collaborator. You are reliable and dependable. It does not mean any of that. What it does mean is that especially in today's tech landscape, you cannot rely on staying in the same organization for years at a time. If you do, that is not the norm. I think the average tenure for an employee in a big tech firm is under two years. So it's essential in this economy for people to get really strong at a craft that is that is valuable and transferable and that will serve a wide range of organizations because wherever there is unmet need, that is where you can have the biggest impact. Cybersecurity, again, is a great example of that because we have a very large number of cybersecurity roles across the federal and private sectors and not remotely enough people to fill them. 
And similarly, we are seeing major gaps in data-specific roles, especially roles related to governance, ontology management, information architecture, uh, then, of course, more specialized areas of data science like deep learning. So it's more, it's less about how can I stay at this company forever, uh, like our parents did, and it's more about what am I what am I contributing wherever I am to my work to my organization, and how can I continue to hone this craft so that it is scalable across a wide range of sectors, clients, business uh, business problems, etc. I entered the workforce you know over a decade ago, thinking that a marker of success was how long you stay at a company, and therefore, if I didn't stay for five years or more, I felt like a failure in some way. And again, of course, there you should want to stay at your organization for many years. I've been at mine for for almost four years now, so I'm certainly not opposed to that. But I do think that it's important to be pragmatic and really think about the long game versus getting too attached to one particular place or product. Yeah. I remember back when your resume would have a bunch of different jobs on it, it looked like you were a job hopper and you were unreliable. Now you're sort of looking at the person's experience and knowledge, not so much that they've had a lot of jobs. Yes. And I will say the attitude. So I, I remember that attitude as well. Mm-hmm. I encountered that in my first year or two out of graduate school when it, prospective employers would say, you, know, you don't have, you either, it was either one of two things. You don't have much, much work experience or many jobs on your resume, or they would say you have too many jobs on your resume. And I, I, meanwhile, I'd be thinking to myself, I graduated less than six months ago. These are all internships mm-hmm. and, uh, and which means that they were inherently time boxed. And yes, I don't have a lot of work experience because I just graduated six months ago. So these are entry level positions. And so I but I do remember very much when that was frowned upon. And it it is again, I do do think there's a generational divide here. This I'm this is my millennial self talking. But at the same time, uh, I I agree with you. The that attitude is by and large out of step with the modern Mm -hmm. economy and modern times now. Exactly. So now looking into the future, what do you think the greatest focus is going to be on in your industry over the next five years? That's a great question. When I think about AI, I think AI safety and security is going to be huge. I think the fact that we've seen a lot of big tech firms basically gut their trust and safety teams, Twitter being one, is to, to say that it's short-sighted is is not uh, strong enough. I, I think it's been an astronomical mistake because we already do not have the the automation and infrastructure in place to foster trust and safety of our data to the degree that teams should. So the fact that those resources have even been cut further in the short term really does not bode well for the long term. I think especially in the sphere of self-driving cars, as we as we start bringing more mass consumer products to market and companies like Tesla are going to have to continue to 
prove that their products are superior to the cars that most people are comfortable with. Uh, trust and safety really, and, the, and proof of that is going to become more par- paramount. I think uh, black box algorithms in five to 10 years are going to go by the wayside because it, people will not only realize that they cause a lot of challenges, pre- both practically and existentially, but they, I think there will be requirements for people producing these products using AI to show and be transparent about how they reached the end results that they did. And the reason for that is not to add unnecessary uh, barriers to innovation. It is literally to protect the public and to protect us from possible harm that AI could do, especially when you are using a, you're on the road with a product like a self-driving car and you as a fellow driver do not have the opportunity to sign a waiver or consent to being on the road with one of those cars. It's going to be a given. And so as a result of that, if companies want to succeed in the future, they are going to have to very much prioritize trust and safety to a degree that they have not been forced to yet. Okay. Well, Lauren, is there anything else you would like to add? I would love uh, for readers to and listeners to uh, to pick up a copy of the book that I wrote on this subject of designing data governance. It is very focused on the practical realities of designing a team uh, and bringing in the right data stewards to help you own aspects of your data. Uh, so it is it is less technical in that regard. And so I hope that that means that it lowers the barrier to readership for a lot of folks. You can get the book um, from my publisher at their website, pragprog.com. You can get it there in print, audio, and ebook format. And then it's also available from really any other book publisher uh, from Barnes and Noble and Target to many local bookstores. So if you want to support a local bookstore, uh, you can order the book from there as well. Um, And I would love to hear from listeners about what resonated with them. And if they would be willing to write a review. Those reviews really do help first-time authors like me. They help surface our books and algorithms and get them found by a wider audience. So I would love any additional help that your readers can get and listeners can give. Awesome. And I'm also going to add the link in the show notes so people can easily find that link as well. Excellent. Well, Lauren, thank you for taking the time to speak up with us today. Oh, likewise. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to check out our other podcasts, Keeping IT Brief and Afternoon Tea, available on your podcast providers.